You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Uh, Many thanks for joining us for the pregnancy podcast today. Uh, My name is Yek Mann. I'm a consultant rheumatologist at Lewisham and Greenwich NHS Trust. And I'm very pleased to be joined by um, Ian Giles, uh, who is a professor and honorary consultant rheumatologist at University College London Hospital. As I'm sure you're all aware, Ian has been heavily involved with the recently um, updated BSR guidelines on pregnancy and breastfeeding. So I'm very, be, very pleased to be joined by him today. Uh, thanks very much for the introduction, Yik, and the invite to talk about the guidelines and other pregnancy-related matters today. It's a pleasure. We're all grateful for your huge piece of work on the um, recent guidelines. And just to briefly talk about that, um, what would you say are the main headlines from the recent update? Uh, well, <clears throat> I think that there were always two guidelines, but previously they were sort of parts one and two. And I think the big sort of change here is we've definitely separated them out as two different guidelines and followed both rigorous but slightly different processes to assimilate evidence for the comorbidity guideline covering medications like antihypertensives, thromboprophylaxis, vasodilators, uh, and so on, because there's so much other evidence out there from august bodies that have done systematic reviews. We set filters high and just chose to select evidence from basically other systematic review articles. Whereas for the other guideline, which is focused on immunomodulatory drugs that are more the sort of bread and butter of the rheumatologist drugs that uh, figure large in pregnancy for patients with inflammatory rheumatic disease, we went back to the basics. And although we excluded case reports because they're prone to bias and very small studies, we uh, basically updated all of the evidence that's been published since um, 2013 when we last did the data search. So the two uh, new guidelines that have updated from the previous ones with introduction of some new drugs being old drugs that we didn't include before, but also to cater for the explosion of new biologics and small molecule inhibitor drugs that are now available, particularly in the immunomodulatory guideline. Excellent. Um, What were the specific challenges you had when you were preparing this guideline? So, I mean, the challenges that are are faced by any guideline working group is sort of really the systematic review process and the large body of evidence that can produce. Uh, And so, for instance, although I sort of briefly touched upon how we set filters quite high for one of our uh, um, guidelines, we still overall had to review 30,000 articles. So that's a lot for any systematic review process. So you do... You, you, need a very, you need a very dedicated and focused systematic review team, and you need a large body of people to be able to help work through that. Uh, and the BSR has been investing in that for its guideline working groups to, with support. And so from this time around, we had support from a systematic review team at King's College Hospital, um, which were, who were fantastic in helping to uh, review and assimilate the guidance uh, and that then allowed the other sort of members of the working group to really to be able to focus on the evidence uh, to produce the recommendations. Because, of course, one of the real big problems for the pregnancy guidelines specific to that is that there are no randomised controlled trials that we could draw on. Yeah. Uh, and so the quality of evidence overall is very low. But, be, but it, because a large body of evidence is emerging for certain drugs, 
I think we can be quite secure in our recommendations, which are broadly uh, com- um, describing safe use of many of these medications in pregnancy. So I would say don't, don't be frightened of using drugs in pregnancy. It's most important to control the disease for certain. I think that's definitely true. And I think um, the guidelines obviously give um, colleagues a lot of reassurance in managing um, especially complex patients um, through their pregnancy. You've talked quite a lot about evidence. Where do you think there needs to be more research um, and where is the evidence lacking at the moment in terms of um, pregnancy and rheumatic diseases? So so that's a really good question. And and I think one of the sort of things that sort of occurred to us as as the working group when we were going through the evidence uh, that I just just alluded to earlier is the Mm -hmm. lack of randomised controlled trials. And of course, we're, we're sort of inferring safety evidence about medication use in pregnancy from a lot of the cohort analysis that's been done, which I guess largely is concerned with sort of safety outcomes. But but what's often ignored is the impact of, or particularly of withdrawing the medication or stopping the medication at a certain point in pregnancy on the maternal disease, and then measuring the maternal disease, and then looking for any associations between that and adverse pregnancy outcomes. So the the sort of really the strong link between active disease and potentially harmful pregnancy outcomes is not always apparent from the medications that you're pulling out when you're using a search for sort of with keywords of pregnancy and rheumatic disease, partly because no one's doing the work to look at it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one that's one real gap in the evidence. Um, Breastfeeding is another area where there's very limited evidence uh, in relation to all medications, basically. Uh, and interestingly, through the review process, we were pushed or uh, firmly nudged, let's say, by <laughs> reviewers to, to say that methotrexate is safe to use in breastfeeding. And actually, we'd had a similar conversation ourselves within the group, and many of us had similar conversations at sort of international meetings. And we really wanted to say that. But when we looked mm-hmm. at the evidence, there is so little evidence that it's really hard to justify making such a strong, bold statement like that on the basis of maybe one or two cases, despite a sort of good theoretical basis that is unlikely to cause any harm. And so you, you do have to sort of be take a slightly cautious approach when you're producing guidelines for general consumption like this. Although I think we've, we've struck, hopefully, a good balance between being pragmatic and and not too overly cautious. Great. I think one thing I picked um, up on myself from the recent guideline is uh, not recommending switching um, from someone who's on a a TNF and stable and having stable disease um, to sertilizumab. Um, And I think many colleagues will welcome that as well. But I think some colleagues may still be quite concerned about live vaccinations in newborns um, when a mother has remained on biological therapy such as TNF during their pregnancy and through their um, through to their third trimester. Um, so are you able to summarise the recommendations with regards to live vaccines in the newborn uh, with regards uh, to this? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, a, that's a, uh, certainly a hot topic. And uh, it's, well, one thing to say is it's very difficult to produce a very concise statement that covers all drugs. And so I've pulled it up on my screen because I knew you were going to ask me this question. And what I'm going to read out is is a generic recommendation that we make in the immunomodulatory guideline. In fact, that was 
one of the new sort of aspects as well of the guidelines in that as well as making recommendations specific to each drug, we've put some overall generic recommendations at the beginning of each guideline, which uh, allows to make more link between the, the importance of sort of pregnancy counselling and considering the impact of disease upon pregnancy as well as the medication. So what we said in relation to this topic <laughs> is that immunization schedules in infants after utero exposure to biologic DMARDs will depend on timing of exposure, bioavailability and persistence of the drug, mechanism of action of the drug and specific live vaccine that's being considered. And I think that's if you wanted one sort of concise-ish summary, that would be it in that basically you have to take an individualized approach to each patient because it depends upon the drug they're being given, whether they've stopped it, at what time they did stop it, and which live vaccine you're considering. Because of course, I'm sure people are aware about the MHRA and the EMA guidance that came out this year, particularly in relation to infliximab, saying that exposure in pregnancy means that an infant should not have a live vaccine until they're 12 months of age. Now, we reviewed the same body of evidence for this guideline, and we've said something slightly different, um, which basically says that if the mother is exposed to infliximab in pregnancy, they should not have a live vaccine until they're six months of age. So uh, we say that the mother can have a normal vaccination schedule, which for the UK means they're receiving the rotavirus live vaccine at eight weeks if they've stopped infliximab at 20 weeks of pregnancy. Now, you might think that sounds quite different from what the MHRA is saying, but when you dive down deeply into mm -hmm. the evidence that they looked at, um, it was in relation to exposure patients who were stopping at different stages in pregnancy and for patients who were mostly exposed to infliximab in the later stages of pregnancy, the mean time of clearance of the drug from the infant was at seven months post-birth. So if you are stopping infliximab at 20 weeks of pregnancy, you pretty much cleared it by um, you know, the time that they're receiving the rotavirus. And reassuringly, there are no reports of rotavirus uh, viremia following yeah. vaccine exposure. And the only evidence of clinical harm is with use of uh, BCG vaccine being administered in the first three months of life to infants who were exposed in utero, particularly in the later stages of pregnancy. So the MHRA have played it really, 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 really safe. I've not yeah. found obstetrician who likes this guidance who agrees with it mm -hmm. and based their 12 months upon an extreme outlier from that mean of seven months clearance of the drug to say 12 months because if you want to have an absolute cast iron guarantee that the baby's free of infliximab in its circulation then sure wait 12 months if you want to give pragmatic advice to the mother that doesn't deny the baby of all live vaccines at specific times then um, you can follow the BSR guidance, which sadly will mean the baby won't get rotavirus vaccine because that has to be administered within the first 15, uh, began within the first 15 weeks of life. Otherwise, it's, it can't be given because there's an increased risk of intersusception. Yeah, I think the most important thing you mentioned is having that individualised approach, talking to our patients um, and having an, an understanding with each other. Um, yeah, and sorry, if I could just add as well, because. Mm -hmm. We, we, as part of our guideline team, we had representation from the UK Tetralogy Information Service, yes. and Hodson, who's the medical director. So he did sign up 
and sign off on all of the, the recommendations that we made. And uh, UK Tetralogy Information Service, who are a brilliant source of monographs on all medications, uh, usage in pregnancy that give really practical and pragmatic advice. They have sort of, uh, they've uh, basically produced a statement that's kind of similar to the generic recommendation that I've told you from the BSR guideline that you need to individualize the risk of the in relation to each patient. Um, but what they also say is that if you are considering a live vaccine in the first 12 months of life in the infant to contact them. So that's a kind of get out of jail card, if you like, for me, in that I can just tell everyone to contact UK TIS. Don't contact me, contact UK TIS. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, I think moving away from the guidelines now and just talking about um, the management of rheumatic diseases in pregnancy. Um, what are the effects of pregnancy on rheumatic diseases? So that's that's another fascinating question. <clears throat> and of course, it was long taught that rheumatoid arthritis had an ameliorative effect on pregnancy. Yes. Ports of 75 to 90 percent remission. And if only we could bottle that, that related effect with, um, you know, we'd have cured rheumatoid arthritis. But interestingly, when you <coughs> surveyed uh, modern prospective studies using objective measures of disease activity, uh, the, the outcome response is, is certainly not as favourable as that. Uh, and when we did a systematic review looking at studies published up to sort of the early 2010s, pre-biologic usage in pregnancy, um, it's about 60% of patients who remit in pregnancy and about 50% who relapse postpartum. So it's not quite true to say that, you know, it's, it, uh, you know you've, you've got rheumatoid, everything's going to get better in pregnancy, we can stop the drugs and don't worry. That's unfortunately not the case. Um, it's, you know, relatively good news. Hopefully they will get better, but there's still a 40% chance that they won't. Um, so my sort of mantra is always to maintain medications that are safe in pregnancy to control disease. Uh, and thinking of other diseases as well, uh, lupus, which is sort of contrast to rheumatoid, where there is a, uh, a complex relationship between pregnancy and rheumatic disease, has, you can find, you can find any flare rate basically quoted across many different published studies. One that I like is from a very nice um, comprehensive systematic review on pregnancy counselling in lupus, comes out with a figure of one in four flare rate of lupus in pregnancy, which is maybe not good, but actually most of those are mild flares. So one in 25 are a severe flare. So there, there is basically disease is not going to get better with every, every pregnancy, but it's not necessarily going to get worse either. Yeah. And then on the flip side, um, what, are the, what are the effects of rheumatic disease on pregnancy itself? Because we will, we will have patients with established diagnoses of lupus, rheumatoid arthritis coming to clinic, getting, asking questions about chances of getting pregnant, complications during pregnancy. Um, what should we be saying to them? Yeah, so, the, so there's a lot to talk about in pregnancy counselling conversations, for sure. Um, and there are, there are many sort of different times to have them. Um, trigger points are like a diagnosis because that's yeah. of course when you're initiating uh, treatment disease flares when you're escalating treatment it's at least good to consider what are their pregnancy planning because anything in the near future well you might want to put them off a little bit if you've got active disease number one and number two it's going to influence your choice of medication uh, so the main risks are with lupus and uh, that sort of if you like that that related family of autoimmune rheumatic diseases where there are clear risks for the mother, increased risk of maternal hypertension, reduced growth of the baby, premature delivery, 
Um, but they are also reported in rheumatoid arthritis and other forms of inflammatory arthritis as well. Maybe not as strongly, and there is some conflicting literature, but the largest sort of prospective um, population studies in rheumatoid do show an increased risk. And the association is probably strongest in the patients who have active disease. So my sort of general statement to patients is that active inflammatory disease is bad for pregnancy. So that helps to focus their mind on my subsequent follow-up comment, which is that that I like to control medications that are safe in pregnancy to, to keep the disease uh, calm and quiet, which is good for mother and for baby. Yeah. You mentioned obviously being proactive as clinicians ourselves, asking um, women of childbearing age what their pregnancy plans are. Um, but what is your general approach if a patient came into clinic um, saying that, that they wanted to get pregnant? What would you normally do in these situations? So uh, I guess it's, it's, it's a kind of what I've slightly alluded to. I'll, I'll get an idea of what's the timing. Uh, are they looking in the near, medium or long term? Um, uh, depending on the, their diagnosis, uh, I'm, I might make a comment that there is a relationship between reduced family size and certain rheumatic diseases, but the reasons for that are complex and they're not all directly linked with infertility. Interestingly, there's some evidence of perhaps subfertility in patients with rheumatoid arthritis in that they can take more than 12 months to conceive. And of course, the increased risks of pregnancy complications like uh, miscarriage in lupus is another reason why people have reduced family size. But patients worry about the questions you've just been asking me, the impact of their disease on pregnancy and vice versa, can actually put quite a lot of people off actually conceiving. Mm -hmm. So the patients have got a lot to think about, and they generally do have a very long run-in time in this. So I think if, if, if they've mentioned it, then it certainly means they do welcome the conversation. So I talk about the importance of controlling the disease, getting pregnant at a time when it's, things are calm and quiet, which for inflammatory arthritis, three months is generally okay. If they have more systemic disease, particularly with internal organ involvement, then I'm going to want to know what exactly that was. And depending on the degree and severity of internal organ involvement, I'm probably going to be looking at a six to 12 month period of disease quiescence and control on medication that's compatible with pregnancy. Because that's that's always a big consideration of those conversations is which medications are you taking? Which ones are then safe for pregnancy? Which ones do we need to stop and change in advance? Which ones do we need to think about switching as soon as conception is confirmed? Yeah. So having those discussions in advance is very helpful. Um, but what about the patient that comes into clinic saying that they're pregnant already? How would you um, deal with that? So, so we like to plan ahead and avoid surprises, but we're always going to get surprises. Yes. This is true. Um, from my experience, it's one of the fastest modes of transition from the adolescent to the adult rheumatology service is the unplanned pregnancy uh, on patients who are taking methotrexate or mycophenolate. Yes. So, so my first piece of advice is all, to both clinician and patient is always don't panic. I would say there is no disease indication or medication in which there's a 100% certainty of a bad outcome. And in fact, in most cases, everything will be fine. Uh, so for instance, for medications like methotrexate, mm -hmm. which is one that we do say to, we like to stop in advance of pregnancy, actually a change in the recent guideline is yes. that we've shortened that interval uh, from what was previously stated at three months, which actually we discussed quite at length even then and decided we couldn't shorten it. But there is now good evidence to sort of justify a shortening to one month. Um, and in fact, some colleagues wanted to say stop when pregnant, um, 
which is a little bit bold. So we don't say that. But in the case of an unplanned pregnancy, I say, don't worry about it. There's very little evidence of harm. Actually, you often find the patient hasn't even taken the medication, um, so probably didn't take it (laughs) after conception. Uh, I say stop it, ensure that you continue taking the folic acid, five milligrams a day. Uh, That's very important for methotrexate exposure. And refer to a specialist maternal medicine service and or obstetric rheumatology clinic if there is one. Mycophenolate is is obviously more of a worry because the risks are much higher with that medication. Again, you often find actually the patient hadn't been taking it quite as uh, regularly yes. as was mm-hmm. thought. So, so that's always good news in this situation. Um, so stop it as soon as you can. I think just ensure high dose folic acid supplementation just as not just as a, a good sort of practice point, uh, and then refer on to onwards to a specialist service to have a, a risk balance conversation. Uh, and again, with limited exposure very early in pregnancy, uh, I think the risks don't quite reach those, those high levels that we see in print of sort of 50% miscarriage and or congenital anomaly rates. Yeah, I feel reassured already. <laughs> um, but based on what you were saying, would you say you're more worried about an unplanned pregnancy in someone who's got active lupus, for example, rather than the fact that they're on methotrexate? Yes, exactly. I, th- I think that's that's very true to say is that uh, the, un- the, unex- the unplanned pregnancy in someone with active poorly controlled disease uh, often presents more challenges than, than those medications, because if, if the disease is calm and quiet, then you're, you know, you can stop the medications and there's no rush to necessarily replace them with something straight away. But for the patient with active disease, um, if they are on those medications, then, then you've, clearly you've got to stop them, but you, you know, you've got to replace them with something else. Otherwise, you're going to be in an even worse situation in terms of your disease control. So you've then got to explain to them the importance of uh, controlling disease with medications that are compatible with pregnancy. And, and steroids here are our go-to medication. And in fact, another, but another slight change or rather caveat that we've put in the latest edition of the guidance is that you should ideally try and sort of cap the dose at 20 milligrams per day and taper the dose as soon as is feasibly possible. And that's because it's now recognised that there are some associations between prednisolone usage in pregnancy and premature delivery, as well as all of the other things that, you know, we're always worried about with steroid exposure. So, so yes, steroids remain the go-to drug. And of course, we need to use them to control disease when it's active, because that's, that's a bad state of to be for the mother and the baby um, but we try and you know re- reduce the area under the curve as far as possible in pregnancy great um so we're quite lucky here in Lewisham Greenwich we have um someone who does obstetric medicine um but do you have any tips um on how we should work alongside our obstetric colleagues especially if we don't have someone who does obstetric medicine to ensure the best outcomes for our patients yeah, it's, it's a really important point. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it's it's kind of easy when you when you work in a place where there is, it's easy to sort of communicate and reach out with people. And I, I was lucky by working in a place where we have obstetric physicians and through them reaching out to the rheumatology department, that was where I sort of almost by chance started my interest in this area uh, many years ago now. Um, so, 
So it's important to try and build links. It always helps if someone within the department, within the rheumatology department, has a special interest. Uh, I can, it's a very rewarding area of work. Obviously, you need space to build it into your job plan. Yes. Um, and I think what you will find is that there's probably there's a growing army of people on the maternal fetal medicine side whom you can reach out to because there's been an expansion of posts and network because yes. of the sort of poor outcomes that have been consistently reported, unfortunately, from ongoing analysis like the Embrace reports, which are mother-baby reporting risk through audit and confidential inquiry, which annually report on the death rate of mothers and babies uh, and what sort of factors are associated with that. And unfortunately, those rates are rising um, and even, even outside of the COVID pandemic, um, and are increased in uh, groups, certain ethnic groups, and um, increased in patients with chronic disease as well. That's a regular finding from the report. And although it's more sort of mental health issues and cardiovascular disease, mm -hmm. musculoskeletal disease does feature on there. And of course, our patients with complex disease often have those features as well. So, so I, the point I'm making is that you're, there, are, there are going to be more maternal medicine docs to reach out to in the future. So it's probably, hopefully going to be easier to do that. And they will want to see these patients for sure. Great. Um, and really moving on to the final question, um, what um, do we need to advise our patients with regards to the postpartum period? Yeah, so that's that's always a, a good point. Don't sort of forget about what happens after the, the baby's born. Um, and so, in fact, because that is a risk, a risk of flare. So, you know, we try and obviously want to keep things calm and quiet during the pregnancy. And another reason I, I tell the patients is that it's important to maintain medications to control things during pregnancy is to reduce sort of alteration of medication uh, because there's an increased risk of flare postpartum. Because a lot of people think, oh, I'll just stop the medications in pregnancy and then restart when I'm breastfeeding when I feel like it. But, you know, then you might miss the boat and then be trying to regain control of an active inflammatory disease at a time when there's a new baby to deal with. Uh, and that can then reduce the chances of successful ongoing breastfeeding, for which there's health benefits to mother and baby. So talking about it in advance and preparing for the mother for that eventuality, I think also helps them to accept the importance of ongoing medication. Uh, the, the risk of disease flare postpartum. That's why in the obstetric rheumatology clinic, we see pay, about half the patients we see at UCLH come for pre-pregnancy counselling. And the other half, we follow through pregnancy and we see at least once postpartum in that first, in that six month period. Great. Um, thank you very much for your time again. I think that was very insightful um, and has provided lots of information. Um, and it was great that you managed to link in parts of the new guideline into this podcast. Um, so I'm sure if um, anyone listening to this has any questions, I'm sure you'll be happy to take them. <laughs> <laughs> but what? Yes, but I would say do read the guideline first. And in fact, my last point to make about the guidelines yes. is that there are two guidelines. There's an executive summary which contains the key recommendations, the evidence, uh, the sort of summary tables. And there's the full length guideline, which contains that plus the wealth of evidence, which has been distilled down and reviewed that explains to you why we made those recommendations. So what many questions that I'm asked are actually answered by reading the full length guideline, which I think everyone forgets to do. So, so my only plea is do look at that first. Great. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much. Ian.
Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.